This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Okay, you get these big-time heavyweight overseas events. You get the sell-offs, the one that breed a lot of fear. Sell, 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 sell. And I always say, uh, let it come in, let it come in, let it come to you. Don't reach, come in your way. I know that's not what you want to hear on a down day like this. Dow lost 138 points. S&P sank 0.76%. NASDAQ nosedive 1.23%. You want to know when the pain is going to end. The house of pain. When will we get the trauma of Turkey out of our system? Hey, when do we go back up? Good thing you tuned in because I'm going to tell you how this sell-off is going to work. Why it's not as special as it seems and how it has already, to some degree, started coming back up, given the remarkable climb from the lows today, a climb that could continue in the AM because of a stellar quarter delivered by Cisco this very night. It was a shoot-the-lights-out quarter with the possibility of some real tech pin action. First, this whole sell-off began with a man-made event. The U.S. is having a spat with Turkey, and tariffs are flying back and forth. By the same token, that means that the Turkish turmoil can be quelled by some sort of compromise between President Trump and President Erdogan to release this American citizen the Turks are holding in custody. Seriously, this whole thing is about one guy, some evangelical pastor you may never have heard of. If Turkey sends him back, the extra tariffs on steel and aluminum could go away. The currency could stabilize. Everything could go back to kind of normal. The great thing about man-made problems is that they're easy to solve. And when we get some resolution, you have to prepare for the snapback rally, even as it might seem impossible right now. But today really wasn't about Turkey. In fact, the Turkish lira, their currency, actually rallied today. No, there are some other culprits that are really freaking people out. So I have to help you put them in context and then give you an action plan. First, understand this sell-off is a carryover from overseas, specifically China, where the Shanghai Composite fell another 2%, now down nearly 18% for the year, 23% currency adjusted. <laughs> True bear. The, the uh, Chinese market's been hellacious because their economy is slowing. Last night's decline was exacerbated by weakness at 10 cent. That's the video game and social media colossus. Back in January, this company had a market capitalization of nearly $600 billion. Now it's less than $400 billion, including a huge, this huge drop that we just had. Why? Well, because 10 cent reported a weak quarter. Weak, caused in part by some bizarre, unexplained government intervention in its video game business and the poor modernization of a lot of new hit games. Shocking shortfall from the hottest company in the entire index. The stock goes down 6% and can take down an index. You know what? I found this decline disconcerting because it is a reminder of how bad the Chinese Communist Party is at running a stock market. 
They got a pretty good handle on the rest of capitalism. But securities, they're not their strong suit. Not only have many investors borrowed money to own stocks, but there's also an index fund effect pulling down almost all the blue chip Chinese stocks by new Chinese Google off 9%. Even the stock of the much-loved Alibaba by Me Too, the Chinese Amazon, is now down 1.5% for the year. This rolled back an immense run, 211 down to 169. Facebook-like, for heaven's sake. Now, China's plagued by a decelerating economy, nascent inflation, and a shroud of secrecy over what's really going on with this government. Trade war hasn't helped them either. That Chinese weakness then spread this morning to Europe. And here's where things get a little tricky. At about 4.30 a.m. this morning, I'm watching things, okay? Our stock market was looking a little soggy, down less than a quarter percent, kind of like Europe. Then Europe fell out of bed, plummeted precipitously, down about a full percent. Suddenly, the same thing happened here. It was like, boom, I was in the shower. I was working out, boom, down a percent. We were completely in sync. So we have to ask ourselves, does that make any sense? No. But we've seen this kind of thing repeatedly happen for ages and ages. The pajama traders. Now, ultimately, we disentangled uh, as their markets dropped about a percent and a half. While our averages bounced off their lows. Remember, the S&P closed down only 0.76%. Nice rally. Behind the scenes, though, there's another element of the world economy that is truly freaking people out. And that is the collapse of the entire commodity complex. Copper's hitting lows, lumber's way down, metal's awful, and now oil is off huge. Takeaway for most people, <gasps> the tariff, Trump, Trump's tariffs, well, people just think, you know what, now you're they're starting to come home to roost. Slow global commerce. Numbers have to come down for all our companies. Final nails in the coffin. Macy's allegedly reported a weaker than expected quarter, sending its stock down 16%. And Kimberly Clark is raising tissue prices to offset their cost inflation. That stock went up. Bearish takeaway, slowing growth, high inflation. Hey, stagflation. Worst not over yet would be the headline, right? Or whatever it is down at the, what do they call it? The lower third is the lower third. I'm asking my producer. It's called the lower third. Lower third deco. These are all terms that I'm going to get used to in the 15th year of the show. I'm almost there. Now, let me put all this in context because context changes the way we look at this stuff. Ready? Let's start with China. The Chinese are digging in their heels on trade. Now, we hear endlessly that President Xi's playing the long game, waiting out President Trump, something you can do because he's not democratically elected. True. I have no doubt. But the Chinese stock market is playing the short game. The Chinese Communist Party still runs what is, in many ways, a command economy. When they decide to have a stock market so companies can raise capital, I think they may have misjudged that stocks can't be commanded to go higher. They can go lower, even in communist China. Plus, when the government basically forces a huge company like Tencent with all that momentum to have a shortfall, well, that makes investors freak out, as they should. I mean, what the heck is going on there? This is China, for heaven's sake. Oh, yeah, I got to get this off. I had a blood test today. Ah, okay, anyway, I'll pick that up later. Europe, what can I say? It, It looks like, it's probably a mistake. It looks like many of their largest banks have lent money in Turkey. And now they have to take the hit. Plus, Europe does a ton of business with China, and that's a real lake. Okay, but how about us? Should we be as worried? Should we be as afraid as everyone tells me to be? Okay, here comes the game plan. First, it was ridiculous 
that we initially went down as much as Europe this morning. Ridiculous. Our linkage to Turkey at this point is almost nil. At this point, it's mostly man-made headline risk. Second, if you listen to as many conference calls as I do, you know that one of the real issues this quarter was the decline in gross margins caused by, yes, soaring commodity prices. Guess what? Commodities are now plummeting. Positive. Oil coming down. Positive. So many companies have been hampered by high energy costs. How could this possibly be bad? What is wrong with this picture? It's great for all but the 8% of the economy that's directly related to the price of oil. Look, you can worry about inflation or you can worry about falling commodity prices, but you can't worry about both. The one is literally the opposite of the other. Third, flight to quality that all of these turmoil causes has kept interest rates in check, for heaven's sake. Throw in the falling price of lumber. This could actually make housing more affordable someday. How about Macy's? Oh, please! It was a good quarter with some gross margin issues, but real growth. I think the stock's a victim of its own success. Even after the decline, Macy's is still up an astounding 40% for the year because CEO Jeff Gannett's done a fantastic job of revitalizing the stores, growing the digital business, and fixing the darn balance sheet. And what's the problem with the gross margins, really? I mean, they're going to be up for the year anyway. That's what matters. Now, here's the rub. For months, we've watched the Nasdaq roar based on fabulous earnings. Do you think it makes sense that the Nasdaq got slammed today on that bill of particulars I laid out? No way. When I tell you to wait for an exogenous event to trigger a market-wide sell-off so you can buy, I'm talking about days like today, maybe tomorrow. You're going to get a chance to buy the high flyers like the Cloud Kings, like Amazon, even Facebook, like a company we're going to talk to tonight, the Twilio. And you know what? Maybe the discount won't even be that pronounced because, of course, the surging Cisco after hours could stem a real bloodbath. Should we just go buy everything? No. Uh, the charts are bad. Technicians are losing it. Lots of stocks held by weekends. People don't know what they own. We're going to be hearing the word peak so many times in the next 24 hours that you're going to think that we're living in the Himalayas. But here's the bottom line. If you're not buying something here, picking up stocks that I've repeatedly told you to buy into an unrelated market weakness, I think you're missing a terrific opportunity. And hey, if you think I'm being too bullish, I say I'm probably not bullish enough. Katie in Florida, Katie. Kim Kramer, it's me, Katie from Palm Beach Gardens. My question is about NXPI. Oh, I'm sorry. My question is about NXPI Semiconductor. Yeah. So several years ago, I bought NXPI several hundred shares when it was at $40 a share. And as you well know, it was, it's at 90, around 90 now, but the all-time high was 126. So now that Qualcomm no longer wants to buy them, it went down another $1.43 today. Right. So should I buy more? No, no. I 85, 86 I just- is where it's valued versus the other stocks in the cohort. Remember, also as an auto-related component, it was great when Qualcomm was first buying because they wanted to diversify. Not so great now. I'm not a huge fan of NXPI. We've got a lot of other great semiconductor stocks that are going down. Check AMD and, of course, my dog NVIDIA. Although NVIDIA, like I said, I'm not excited about this particular quarter because there's so much crypto money that's in it that shouldn't be. Anyway, I'm not a big fan of NXPI. Okay, call me overly bullish if you want. But if you aren't buying something, not picking at something, and the winner's here, you may be passing up a killer opportunity. My money tonight, my exclusive was Senator Elizabeth Warren. She led crusades against major companies like Wells Fargo and Equifax, and now she's unveiling a bill to make corporate governance great again. You're not going to want to miss this one. Then, I may have found the next big buying opportunity in the unlikeliest of places. The cereal aisle, for heaven's sake. Is it time to fill up your bowl? Don't you like Raisin Bran? And shares of Twilio soared 25% last week after posting a blowout quarter. 
But can the move continue higher? I've got the CEO. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all, every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. This morning, the Wall Street Journal published an incredibly provocative piece by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren about how companies can be held accountable to reward more than just shareholders and the top dogs. We have been big believers on Mad Money that the companies that perform the best are the ones that pay and treat the rank and file much better than others. So this article resonated with us. So we were thrilled to sit down with her this morning at the New York Stock Exchange to discuss her novel way to reward the stakeholders of the enterprise. Take a look. Senator, one of the things we talk about in Mad Money is that they're more than just shareholders. They're stakeholders. Yeah. You produced a very thought-provoking article in the Wall Street Journal about co- companies shouldn't be accountable only to shareholders. Tell us about it. All right. So you know how American economy worked for decades, shoot for centuries. And that was that the biggest companies in this country had multiple responsibilities. Responsibility to their shareholders, to their employees, to their customers, and to the communities that they were involved in. And it worked. Right. Right? Everybody got richer. And we're uh, coming back to it like a sales force is saying it, but the vast yeah. majority of that's right. Back. Stock market went up. Uh, uh, productivity goes up. And workers do better. We built the great American middle class. And then what happened? You start basically in the 1980s and corporations start shifting over and they say, wait, 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 we have just one single minded focus. Shovel as much money as you can into the pockets of the shareholders and forget about the rest of that stuff. And the consequence has been that the shareholders have done really well. The 10% of America that owns more than 80% of all the stock shovel money in there. But workers, wages have flattened out. In fact, lately it looks like hourly wages adjusted for inflation have gone down. Digitization? No kidding. No kidding. But here's the thing about all of that. It's that it's not even working long term for the corporations themselves. We have seen over the past 25 years extraction of about $7 trillion of investment in America's companies. That's not how we build a long-term future. So I have a proposal to deal with it. And my proposal says, let's get a little accountability into the system and let's get these corporations to charter federally, the ones that have more than a billion dollars of sales every year, 
And let's have a couple of features. First one, let's put some employees on the board. Let the employees elect some people. So you've got multiple representation on the board itself. Second one, let's change the compensation structure for the CEOs to say that the CEOs will not be permitted to juice the price and then once they juice the price, make a quick right. sale, make a bazillion dollars, and keep emphasizing the incentives. That's what we've got now for short-termism. Want to get rid of it. Okay, so okay. why uh, devil's advocate? Okay. If, if your bill passes, uh, we know the way capitalism can work. You can be a little rogue. Would some companies say tax on jobs will just outsource? Tax on jobs will hire temporary workers. How do you get around that? No, no, this doesn't change anything. Let's be clear. This is no new taxes, and I want to be really, really okay. clear. doesn't cost the American taxpayer a single penny. So it's not anti-business. It's not anti-business. This is saying to businesses, hey, what you need is you need a little more diversified board, and you need CEOs and top executives who are incentivized not just to think in the next quarter, but to think longer arc about how this business works, that's going to be good for okay. everybody. Now, let's take a company like Costco. They okay. have long thought this. Costco is the best performer in the group. Salesforce, long yep. thought, yep. best performer in the group. Why do we need legislation when the examples of great stocks that actually embrace their workers are so evident? What is with the other guys? Oh, I get it. The problem you've got is we need to level the playing field, and that's what rules do. Because right now, well, there are a couple of companies that are willing to show what it does for the companies. The CEOs understand the money is to be made in the companies that don't do that. The money is to be made in short-term juicing the stock. Look at the trillion dollars in buybacks that have occurred. That's not investment in these companies. That's nothing more than a sugar high for those companies in the short term. Helps the top executives doesn't help the company long-term and sure doesn't help the employees and sure doesn't help the communities they're in. Okay, let's talk about the bigger picture of trade. Okay. Uh, we uh, need to worry, I believe, uh, and have felt, that the uh, industrial economy, mm -hmm. uh, that there have been predator economies like China that have really hurt and targeted yep. our industries. Do we worry about, say, the steel industry the way the current administration uh, is? Because in the end, if it's rapacious and coming from overseas, we lose the, the workers lose their jobs, and that's just their pay. Well, how yep. do you feel about it? So, look, my, I've been a critic of trade policy in America, as you that's know. Why that's why up. you brought it up. That's why I brought it because up. Because I've been on this for such a long time. But you are not a. You are not. You've been on this train for a long time because I follow you. You've yep. always been concerned about the American worker losing yep. their job because of predators from overseas. And I have worried about trade policy that has been written largely by a handful of multinational corporations. That it has not been written to enrich Americans. It's been written to enrich those who play above that sphere. And I'll give you one quick example, and that's enforcement of the promises in the trade deals. You know, they put labor promises in, they put environmental promises in, they put the level playing field promises in those trade deals. Good luck on getting them enforced. But for the giant multinationals, there's a special, special deal. And the special deal is, if they don't like a new regulation that gets passed after they've cut a trade deal, they get to go to a special fast-track arbitration outfit made up of corporate lawyers they come in and make their case that Canada shouldn't be able to prohibit this particular chemical or the United States is doing X or Mexico's doing Y. 
that they don't like and it cuts into profits. A handful of corporate lawyers make a decision. Are you ready? They hand down that decision and either the, the country changes its law or makes a big payment. No going through a court system, right. no appeals, no nothing. That's just saying, in effect, trade deals are written for the guys who run these big multinationals, not for the American but, people. Now, Senator Warren, you know that Peter Navarro was a very close advisor to mm -hmm. President Trump. If he were sitting here, he would probably say that chapter in verse. Does it bother you that you're basically on the same side as someone who's the chief trade advisor to the president? Look, I'm on the side of the American people. American workers do better. We all do better. Yeah. For me, that's the stock market goes up, about. too. You know that. The individual the stocks deal. go up. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we built in America a great middle class, and we did it on the backs of hardworking people who came together, mostly through their unions, to be able to say, this is a country whose rules give everybody a chance. That's gone off track in the past 25, 30 years in the wrong direction. We are a country increasingly where the government works just for those at the top and just leaves everyone else no, behind. I, I want people to understand the context. I yep. mean, a lot of people feel you're just this left-wing firebrand. Isn't what you described the way this country was in 1980? Yeah. I mean, that's really the point. I believe, I believe in markets. I believe in all of the wealth that markets produce. But markets have to have rules. And together, we decide those rules. You know, like, you got to have a cop on the beat. you got to have traffic well, well, lights. Okay, where was the cop on the beat in Wells Fargo? Yeah, and that's the whole point. And, you know, they're an example of why I've put this new proposal okay. together. So here's Wells Fargo. What do the executives do? They squeeze, they push, they trick, they break the law to juice their short-term profits. And every time they do that, they get richer. Long-term what the executives of that company did to that company and what that board of directors signed off on is not good for the health of Wells Fargo. It's not good for the employees no, of Wells Fargo. It's not good for the customers of Wells Fargo. And it's not good for the American banking system or the American economy. We need to put a okay, stop Okay, so that. once again, just want to go back because I know that people say, well, hold it. How could Senator Warren say, wait, I see some advantages say, to what Peter Navarro says. Uh, President Trump's overall economic position is, is that there are countries that take advantage yes. of us. And by the way, and boost the profits of multinationals. That's yes. not talked about that much. That, but that's you're, right. you're, 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 you're fine being aligned on this particular issue. I'm aligned with the American people. That's what matters to me, the American worker. I want to see American workers who produce so much of the wealth in this country. I just want to see them be participants in getting some of that wealth back in their pockets. I, I know this is a loaded question, but there will be people who listen and will say, she must be running for president. What do we say to them? You know, look, these are, uh, first of all, I am running for Senate, 83 more days, Massachusetts, uh, 2018. But let me say, these are the things I've worked on all my life, Jane. You know that. No, I followed you. Not, not a position has changed. This is about, we, uniform. we've got to get this country to work for all of us. Today. All right, Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank you so you much. You bet. It's good to see you. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. 
That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Sometimes a seemingly neglected stock in a sleepy industry will come out of nowhere and surge higher, forcing us to reassess what the heck is going on here. Just take a look at Post Holdings, the packaged food company you know as the maker of tons of different cereal brands, Fruity Pebbles, Shredded Wheat. I like Shredded Wheat. Uh, that's great, isn't it? How about this? This looks so good for you, right? Or well, anyway, um, it, they also make power brunch. They have all these things too, and you know, like a, pain, a bunch of frozen food. You get the picture. Here's a stock that pretty much traded sideways from the middle of 2016 to the middle of this year. Post is a packaged food company with no dividend, unlike many others. So uh, many people thought there wasn't too much to get excited about here. But in the past few months, really the past two weeks, the stock has caught fire to the point where it's now up nearly 20% for the year in a group that isn't really doing that well. I didn't spill these. Someone else spilled. So for those of you who haven't, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, what in the world is driving this move? More importantly, can this stock, made of things like great nut flakes, raisin bran, I always like their own raisin, the post-raisin brand better, can this still go higher? I mean, it's kind of nutty, isn't it? Nut and honey? Is that theirs? I don't know. So anyway, okay, let's start with some background. In addition to being the third largest cereal company in North America, Post makes protein shakes, they make the power bars, frozen foods, all sorts of private label store brand snacks too. On top of that, the company has a food service business where they process and distribute all sorts of egg and potato products. Who can figure? Now, for years, Post has been trying to transform itself into a packaged foods powerhouse. They've made a series of acquisitions, mom brands, uh, Willamette Egg Farms, National Pasteurized Eggs, uh, Weetabix. The thing about the packaged food business is that scale is what really matters here. You need bargaining power to strong-arm the supermarkets into giving you the best shelf space and the best prices. So thanks in part to this takeover spree, Post stock more than doubled from the middle of 2014 to the middle of 2016. I missed that move, candidly, but it's never too late. Last year, though, the stock stalled as Post growth seemed to slow and investors were waiting for the next big deal. We got it in September when Post announced a relatively huge $1.5 billion purchase of Bob Evans Farms. This is the sell sausages, mashed potatoes, bacon, a whole lot more. This is just, by the way, the packaged food part of Bob Evans, not the restaurant, okay? Look at this. Everything they make is so healthy, this company. The market loved this news because it meant more scale, more cost saving, and more dominance in particular parts of the supermarket. The problem is, deal was a lot to digest. Even after recent run, Post is only a $6.3 billion company. When the company reported in November, they raised their capital expenditures forecast for 2018. So investors started fretting about where they'd get the cash. You know, you're allowed to do that. You're just supposed to grow without spending. The consensus was that Post would need to sell off some divisions in order to raise capital. A lot of analysts were calling for them to divest the private label business, which really doesn't fit that well with the rest of the company. Now, it's, that's been a huge part of the story, another huge part. But as last year unfolded, even after we learned about the big Bob Evans deal, management made no announcements on the divestiture front. 
Oh, that was disappointing. So the stock went into kind of a slump. Plus, it didn't help that the whole packaged goods space started getting hit with a series of woes late last year from rising commodity costs. How many times did you hear that? We talked about at the top of the show. To rising transportation costs, a whole lot of other things that just were, you know, people kind of felt blindsided by. Now, the Bob Evans deal closed in January, and the company said it would explore options for its private label business, the one that they said didn't fit. But when Post reported a not-so-hot quarter in early February, Right into the teeth of the market-wide sell-off, well, the stock got slammed hard. It didn't take long for the stock to put it at bottom, though, because Post finally gave Wall Street what it wanted. They laid out a proposal for an IPO of the company's private label business, and that's when the pain stopped. In May, Post reported an OK quarter that was basically a non-event for the stock. But in early June, investors started getting real excited once we found out that Post was close to reaching that deal to sell their private label division. This made it crystal clear that management was committed to finding the best outcome in terms of unlocking value. So that's the lead up. That's where we were going into August 2nd when Post reported its latest quarter and its stock exploded higher, shooting to fresh all-time highs. This is a food stock. They're all bad. The headline numbers weren't anything to write home about. A modest top line beat with a modest earnings miss. Management tightened up their guidance, but it wasn't her setting, not at all. Now, you might be wondering, how the heck did that cause this stock to jump from 86 to 93 in a single session? Simple. Post also announced what they were doing with this private label business that nobody really seems to want. They're going to create a new entity. It's called 8th Avenue Food and Provisions, which Post will own along with a private equity firm, Thomas H. Lee Partners, smart guys. Under the terms of the deal, Post gets $875 million, but they still retain 60.5% ownership stake in the business. Basically, the company found a way, a creative way, to monetize its private label business while still retaining some of the potential upside from that business. From the stock market's perspective, it was the best of both worlds compared to that outright sale or an IPO that had been considered. Pretty brilliant when you think about it. So Post gets to clean up its balance sheet, but they still have the opportunity to become a major player in the private label space. Perhaps more important, management said they always view their portfolio as, and I just love this, and I'm going to put it in quotes, movable feast, meaning they might be willing to consider doing similar deals to unlock value in the future. Now, Monday, Barclays reinstated coverage on Post with an overweight rating and a very bullish note written by Andrew Lazar. His thesis, well, let me just read part of this to you because I, I thought it was great. Quote, we continue to view Post portfolio approach as more akin to a private equity fund with management focused on stable earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization growth and cash flow, end quote. Then he continues, quote, We see management as effective capital allocators, making acquisitions when market conditions make sense, and being willing to explore other liquidity events when market values valuations overheat, end quote. Ah. In short, Post is not just a food company. It's an actively managed portfolio of food companies. And look, it, it, it's not like the stock's expensive. The stock sells for 17.6 times next year's earnings estimates, making it cheaper than almost all of its peers. While the company doesn't pay a dividend, it, it, it's got a juicy buyback. Currently, they've got $308 million left in the repurchase authorization, which means they could buy back roughly 5% of the float. Here's the bottom line. For years, Post has been tweaking its portfolio of brands. I love their latest acquisition, Bob Evans Farms. It's located... <laughs> whoa, that's great. It's lo- Can we... Would it cost us that much to have... Anyway, it's located right in the center of what's been working at the supermarket, protein and frozen foods, and it's taken a while for them to get credit they deserve. But now the com- but now the company has shown that it knows how to unlock value by selling 
by selling pieces of, of subsidiary brands, the stock is taken off. I love this idea that Post is more like a private equity outfit than it specializes in food and food and company. And I think the stock has a lot more room to run. You know what? It's actually the perfect equity for this newfound treacherous time. Go out, go out, go long, go long, go. It's a go play. Michael in Pennsylvania, Michael. Uh, good evening, Jim. Good evening. I purchased, uh, I purchased 1,500 shares of General Mills after watching your show this past February, and they recently gone down. Should I hold this as a core position in my portfolio to be left for my estate? Well, you know what? It's starting to come back. I don't know if you've noticed that move from 42 up to 46, 47. It's a couple points away from where I did the piece. I was obviously premature. I liked the Buffalo, the, the Blue Buffalo acquisition. The problem is they paid too much. I think we're fine. Hold on to the dividend. Let's see some growth. Dave in Illinois. Dave. Good afternoon, Jim. How you doing? Oh, Dave, I don't know. I'm out of breath. I just, did, I just ran a go pattern. What's going on? <laughs> Long-time listener, first-time caller. Quick one. Hayne Celestial. Sit tight or no, dump and run? too hard. Got to clean up. Got to clean it up. Too difficult to understand. Maybe they get a sale. Maybe they're not. But I can't ever recommend a stock on a takeover basis when I don't actually love the fundamentals. And that's what's going on. I got honey bunches going for me with Post. Look at this thing. This is what my this is what the millennials really don't want. But anyway, uh, Post isn't just an average food company. It's more like an actively managed portfolio of food companies. The Bob Evans deal. It was a good one. Okay, and I think Post has a lot more room to run. This is always good for you. Now, much more mad money had, including my exclusive with Twilio. The stock's up over 200% year to date. But could it continue its move? I got the CEO. Now, while some might think that the bull is on life support, how many times you heard that? I'm going to tell you why it's unlikely that a true bear market could take over. And all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. We need to talk about the remarkable Lazarus-like resurrection of Twilio. Here's a company with a very sexy concept. It's a cloud-based communication software play that helps app developers connect with their users. Think the text messages you get from an Uber, uh, Airbnb. Twilio's stock was red hot when it came public in 2016. Then the stock got eviscerated, giving back all of its gains in a matter of months. Last year, not that much better. Stock got yet hit again when there was some business loss from Uber. That makes its recent comeback all the more remarkable. So far this year, Twilio shares have more than tripled, from less than $25 to nearly $75, as the company's growth has reaccelerated, and then some. In fact, when the company reported last week, Twilio didn't just blow away the estimates. They also reported a surprise profit, which sent the stock flying from 63 to 75 single day. It may have been the strongest quarter we got from any technology company this earnings season. But after this kind of monster rally, we have to wonder, have we missed the move? Could there be more upside or has the easy money been made? Let's take a closer look with Jeff Lawson. He's the co-founder and chairman and CEO of Twilio. Get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Lawson, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Great to be back. All right, Jeff, I got to tell you, uh, I read every tech uh, conference call. I follow every quarter. This was, to me, the only company that truly delivered an upside surprise that was like a magnitude of 2000. You basically did 2019's uh, numbers in 2018. How could you have had accelerated revenue growth in this, your 10th anniversary of business? 
Well, to us, it's the power of the platform business model where we let customers build a wide variety of use cases on Twilio. And then with our usage-based pricing model, when our customers succeed, we succeed. And that uh, platform business model allows us to address such a wide variety of use cases in such a wide variety of companies. We're seeing software developers drive uh, innovation inside of companies big and small, new and old, in verticals from retail to hospitality to real estate to technology companies and everything in between. And so it's the wide variety of companies and the wide variety of things they can build uh, coupled with a focus on customer success that's enabled us to grow so quickly. 10% of, uh, of all developers worldwide are on your platform? Estimated, yeah. We've got millions of developers accounts on our platform, and there's an estimated 20 million developers in the world. So we're really excited. Of course, we see a lot of headroom and continuing to grow our presence with the developers of the world. Well, I, I'm just going to read from your conference call. Communicating through SMS still a mystery for many companies, much less dealing with all the new channels like Facebook Messenger, Google RCS, WeChat, WhatsApp, Alexa. And, you, know, you guys are doing things with, with WhatsApp. I mean, that's 1.5 billion people, and that's on your platform? Yeah, we're very excited. We announced a partnership with WhatsApp uh, last month that allows uh, developers using Twilio to actually reach customers, whether they're on SMS, of course, as we've always done, but now they can also reach those users in WhatsApp. And as you said, 1.5 billion users around the world who use WhatsApp, many of them using it as their primary messaging application. And so now that developers can address those users as well, we think it provides a new way to reach audiences and markets of the world where historically uh, an SMS-only solution wasn't the best way to reach those users. Now we have WhatsApp too, that just opens up new doors for customers to build amazing things. And I have to tell you, on the conference call, you made it very clear. I was worried about how late are we. I mean, you're just talking the beginning of the third wave of enterprise software and how most places are still on premises. And that that means there's so much opportunity for Twilio. Yeah, one of the markets that we've been in for a while is the contact center market, for example. And as a platform, developers can build just about anything. And so we see these hotspots start to light up. And the contact center was one of those areas. And when we started diving into these very large contact centers, I'm talking thousands of seats, thousands of agents using them, building a new solution on top of Twilio, we started to look into like what's going on in the contact center. And what we found is a market that's very large, tens of billions of dollars, and 90% of that market is still on-prem, despite the fact that we're 20 years into this whole cloud thing. And so we asked why, why, what's going on here? And what they told us was, look, in the on-prem world, we could customize these solutions quite a bit, but with that became all sorts of operational complexity. It was hard to scale. It was hard to make these things global. We had downtime. It was really bad. And they say, okay, well, why didn't you move to the cloud? The cloud is supposed to solve those things. And they said, yeah, but you couldn't customize your solutions in the cloud. And so they started building on top of Twilio. And that's a really interesting uh, dynamic that we saw because of our platform approach that allowed us to launch a newest product that we launched earlier this year, which is Twilio Flex. It's an application platform for the contact center that allows customers to build exactly the kind of contact center they need because it's APIs all the way down, but also brings them the reliability and scalability and security of the cloud. And this is our play to further disrupt the contact center market. Well, the more I looked at it, the more I'm thinking, you know what? I'm looking at your company wrong. There are very few tech companies that I see have genuine moats. I can't even think how someone can come in and uproot you at this point. I think that you own this market. I don't see any actual Twilio competitors. 
Well, we focus on customers every day, and that's why we invest so much in R&D, research and development. In fact, half of the headcount of our company is software developers building uh, and advancing our product every day. And what we focus on is, number one, innovation. Because when customers build on top of communications platform, you want to know that platform is getting better every day, giving you new capabilities, giving you new reach and a new market every day without you having to do all that work yourself. But the other thing you want is trust. You want to trust that that platform is available, reliable, and secure. And so we put a huge amount of resources into trust, 5.9's availability, ISO 27001, SOC 2, all these types of compliance things that give enterprises the trust that when you build on Twilio, the thing you build is going to get better every day because of that innovation, and you can trust it to scale and be reliable. And that combination of things focuses our energy on customer success, and because of our usage-based model, when customers succeed, we succeed. One last question. I know the volatility in the stock had to do with actually you were a victim of your own success. Some accounts just were so big, there was really nothing you can do. I love the checkerboard now of big accounts. There really isn't anyone that can hurt you. You've got a great diversification of accounts now. Yeah, we've diversified our revenue base substantially in the last year. And we've taken our top 10 accounts, which used to be about 31% of revenue. We've brought them down to 17% of revenue while growing the top line of the company substantially. In fact, our last quarter, we grew 54% year over year on the top line at almost 600 million of annual uh, run rate revenue. And so we're really proud of what we've done, both in growing our revenue and growing our top line and focusing on that while also diversifying our customer base substantially. Well, I want to congratulate you. That's Jeff Lawson, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Twilio. This one does have more room to run. What a quarter. Great work. Stick with Craig. Thank you, Jim. It is time. It's time for the and then the light round's over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the light round. I'm going to start with Tim in Florida. Tim. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for your great work. Ah, oh, thanks. Fraxair. Uh, had a uh, big run for a long time, and it's had a little bit of a pullback. Is it time to buy more? Well, you know, look, I mean, the government, they're trying to figure out how to be able to deal with this antitrust. I say just go with it. I think that that whole oh, complex of just air, so to speak, is really strong. I like all those in that group. Patrick in California. Patrick. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Thank you. Take okay. Oh, long time watcher. Thank you. With the truck driver shortage this summer I've been hearing about, I'm looking at Trinity Industries. Yeah, keep the- looking. Don't pull the trigger. I'll tell you why. Even though it's just, it, it, look, you're absolutely right structurally. But you know what? We're going to actually own the rails. I like Norfolk Southern, and I like Union Pacific right here, and I like CSX. You can buy any one of those three. How about Shane in Georgia? Shane. Booyah, Jim Kramer. Booyah. Good evening. Good evening. You and your staff are the best. Oh, thanks. What's your wisdom on Jim Muren's MGM Resorts? No, we're recommending Pinnacle Entertainment. We want domestic. We don't want, and we don't want uh, just concentrated Vegas and Macau. And that's why we've been saying Pinnacle. We like it for betting, too. Gambling. Okay, now, I need Robin in New York. Robin. Hi, Jim. I've had the good fortune to meet you and your lovely wife at an Action Alerts Plus event at your fabulous Bar San Miguel. Bar San Miguel. Yeah. yeah. Lisa like that. Lisa's in Colorado for a wedding. She's doing okay. What's up? Well, 
Uh, Ireland would be better, but that's not why I'm calling. I'm calling today about the big dividend cut for shareholders of energy transfer partners despite the additional shares of ETE after the merger. What's your take? I think you ring the register and be glad that they did some sort of takeover there because that has been a god-awful situation. I am not done. I'm going to Kurt in New Jersey. Kurt! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. This This is Kurt from the beautiful mountains of northern New Jersey. I have a question about the drone company, Aero Environment. We like Aero Environment. We like we, we we think that they're terrific. I've been trying to have them on. I don't know what the critical breakdown is because I think that is a well-run company. I'm not done. Can I go to Denise in Minnesota? Denise. Booyah from the middle of farm country. It's hey, Jim. Um, what do you think of Duluth Holdings, D-L-T-A? All right. I like the apparel group very much. But you know what? We are now doing a stock that has spiked so much. I'm going to have to say take a pass. I like Tapestry. And that, ladies and lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I heard again yesterday, conversation among reasonable people about how the bull is on its last legs. Then a few minutes later, I found out that Warren Buffett has bought more Apple, and Stanley's actually purchased nearly 2.3 million more shares of Goldman Sachs, giving him a $3 billion position in one of the worst active financials I have come across in ages. And maybe the bull's not so dead. Look, when we hear that a bull market has died, and this one's died a thousand deaths, it usually has to do with some highly visible, poorly acting stocks or sectors. It goes something like this. Hey, remember Fang? Well, Facebook and Netflix holders sure wish they didn't. Then someone chirps, the Fang defang is just the fable canary in the coal mine. Then there are people, I call them peak people, uh, peak housing, uh, peak autos, peak cell phones, even peak semiconductors. Well, look at Micron, they say, but you know what? They're not looking at AMD. That tells them more bullish story. Then we have trade wars, tariffs, Turkey. I've been to a bull fight. I have to tell you that these are the taunts to the bull before the coup de grace, which I couldn't make myself watch candidly because it's not like the poor bull did anything wrong or hurt anybody. But now let's go back to Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. I figured that with all of this buying, Berkshire had to be the, the largest shareholder of both Apple and Goldman, right? I mean, for heaven's sake, he owns just under 252 million shares of Apple, a little north of 5%. 13 million shares of Goldman, about 3.5%. Nope, not even close. When it comes to Apple, he's just number three, buying Vanguard and BlackRock, which owns 7.2 and 6.3% respectively. How about Goldman Sachs, which was a once a tight-knit partnership when I worked there? He's number five behind Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, and Goldman Sachs itself, presumably its employees. Of course, unlike Berkshire, none of these firms is a real investor. They're repositories of gigantic index funds that buy and buy and buy when the money comes in. They don't even seem ever to sell. They just buy and buy and buy. Why is it so important? Because there's only so much stock to go around. Bull markets live and die based on supply and demand. These index funds soak up supply. Meanwhile, Apple and Goldman Sachs continue to buy back their own shares. Apple had 6.4 billion shares in 2013. Five years later, down to 4.8 billion. Goldman, 471 million shares in 2013. Now, 377 million. And, and they did that with the federal government constraining their ability to repurchase. Can you imagine what Goldman would do with all that cash if they were allowed to buy back with abandon? Put it all together and you've got a genuine stock shortage, which pretty much stacks the deck longer term, not on any given day like today, but longer term in favor of the bulls. Of course, if the fundamentals are bad, none of this buying powder matters. But we've just seen time and again that if business is good, like the quarters we've just been through, stocks go higher. Meanwhile, if business is bad, often an activist will take a position to help the company turn around. In other words, the stock shortage caused by buybacks and index funds gives the bull an edge. 
I'd be very hesitant to declare the bull dead when all this money keeps pouring in and brings it back to life pretty much every day of the week. Stick with Kramer. Cisco with a real good quarter could have some impact and pin action. Like I said, it's always the bull market summer. Probably start to find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.